Scripture lesson this morning, Genesis chapter 47, beginning in verse 27, and then reading through the end of chapter 48. Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possessions in it, and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt seventeen years. So the days of Jacob, the years of his life, were one hundred and forty-seven years. And when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. He answered, I will do as you have said. And he said, Swear to me. And he swore to him. Then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. After this, Joseph was told, Behold, your father is ill. So he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And it was told to Jacob, Your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed. And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you. And I will make of you a company of peoples and will give this land to your seed after you for an everlasting possession. And now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are. And the children that you fathered after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. As for me, when I came to Paddan, to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way, when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath. And I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, Who's are the, Who are these? Joseph said to his father, They are my sons whom God has given me here. And he said, Bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age, so that he could not see. So Joseph brought them near him, and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face, and behold, God has let me see your seed also. Then Joseph removed them from his knees, and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them, both Ephraim in his right hand and toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand toward Israel's right hand, and brought them near him. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys. And in them let my name be carried on, and the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac. And let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. When Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it was evil in his eyes, and he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, Not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people, and he also shall be great. 
Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his seed shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, By you Israel will pronounce blessings, saying, God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given to you rather than to your brothers one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we pray that you would direct us now in this your holy word, that your spirit would give us wisdom, insight, and understanding. Indeed, that we might have eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts that understand and perceive this your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When we hear the term pilgrimage, what associations do we often make with that term? Perhaps we immediately think of Muslims who make the pilgrimage to Mecca, which is one of the five pillars of Islam, requiring Muslims to travel at least once in their life in order to pray at the monolithic pantheon, the Kaaba. And while there were certain rituals and traditions associated with such a trip, it was essentially designed to be a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to walk where the Prophet Muhammad had walked. Roman Catholics might refer to making a pilgrimage to Rome, Italy, And I suppose for some in our circles, it would be a pilgrimage to Moscow, Idaho. (laughs) If you're a diehard sports fan, perhaps you'd take a pilgrimage to see a a game at a historic stadium or your favorite team or go to the Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown or the Football Hall of Fame in Canton. Or maybe you'd simply want to attend the Final Four or some other major event. But there's a measure of an importance for this kind of trip that sets it apart. Jeffrey Chaucer's The Canterbury Tales is the story of a group of travelers, tourists, if you will, who are making their way to the cathedral at Canterbury. It's a pilgrimage, a journey with religious significance. And in Chaucer's telling, it's not about the destination, but about the stories that are told along the way, the truth that is revealed by Chaucer through the characters from various walks of life in the medieval world. Virtues are presented. Vices are displayed, sometimes in shocking fashion, as Chaucer employs various literary forms throughout. Well, this morning we continue to consider the story of Joseph as he is arguably the main character, basically from Genesis 37 and on. Though Jacob, of course, continues to play a key role and Judah's significance has been emerging in more recent chapters. But how has Joseph been presented by the writer? Joseph is the Savior, the Messiah of Israel, and also of the world. That's one of the overarching themes in this section of Genesis. He's the source for bread, for life, even the bread of life, pointing forward to Christ who is the greater fulfillment of what is pictured here in the first book of the Bible. Joseph rescues his family, the priestly people of promise, the people of the seed, and he also rescues Egypt from famine, which is a form of death. And while last week the focus was on Egypt and how Joseph was amazingly able to preserve them through seven years of famine, before and after chapter 47, verses 13 to 26, the author mentions the prosperity of Israel in Goshen. 
Verse 12, they settled in Goshen, the best of the land, and had possession of it. Joseph gave it to them, and they had bread for their household according to the number of their little ones. Verse 27 echoes the same thing and then adds, and were fruitful and multiply. That immediately takes us back to Genesis 1.28 and the dominion mandate given to Adam and Eve. But here, in the midst of death, Israel seems to prosper. So what might be a real danger for Israel and Goshen? What might they be led to think? That Goshen is their new home. After all, Egypt is described as being Eden-like back in chapter 13. Perhaps they would be tempted to forget Canaan altogether and be content to stay in Goshen, putting their trust in Joseph's abilities uh, to provide for them. Of course, the persecution that we read about in the opening chapters of Exodus in the generations to come would reasonably dampen such thinking. However, there was also complaining and grumbling during the wilderness wandering that, the, that, that things were better in Egypt. So maybe the temptation to stay in Goshen isn't so far-fetched after all. But what is set before us in our text this morning helps provide a corrective for that kind of thinking. The faith that Jacob displays shows that he still firmly believes in the promises God made to him as well as to his grandfather Abraham and his father Isaac. We see Jacob finishing well in the faith finishing his race upon this earth in strength and not in weakness. And this is seen in the preparation that he makes for his bones after his death and also in the blessings that he imparts here in chapter 48 and then even on into chapter 49. And while it's true that none of us have been given a position like Jacob's, nevertheless, there is much here for us to consider in regards to our faith and the perspective that we are to have of our present life in this world. Well, mention was made already of Israel's prospering in the land of Goshen, and and that should rightly remind us of Jacob prospering under Laban, despite the adverse conditions he had to deal with there. He too was outside of the promised land, but God made him to be fruitful and to multiply, just as he's doing now with Jacob's family, the people and nation of Israel. And all of Israel is being pictured as a, a new man, a new Adam, who is the seed race for a new humanity, through whom all the nations shall be blessed. God similarly blessed Noah after the flood, bringing about new creation. And there's a sense of that here on the other side of the famine that had stricken the world. That's part of the impression that the writer is conveying. And then notice in verse 28 that the writer tells us that Jacob lived in Egypt 17 years. This means that Jacob experienced five years of famine in Egypt, followed by 12 years of prosperity. But the number 17 is 10 plus 7 a picture of double completeness in some form or fashion. But Jacob has 17 years in Egypt, and as mentioned was made a couple of weeks ago, uh, Joseph was 17 years old when he was sold into slavery in Egypt. And so the, the number 17 kind of bookends the years of Jacob's relationship with Joseph, with roughly some 22 years in between. But the writer also informs us that Jacob lived to be 147. This is less than his uh, father or grandfather, but it's also also an interesting number to to consider, clearly divisible by seven, um, 21 sevens, or seven times seven times three. And while 17 is seven plus seven plus three, there's, there's these interesting symbolic parallels in the numbers that are given here. These numbers being numbers of completion in Scripture. And this is, this is how the, the biblical mind works in relation to biblical math, we might say. 
One other aspect of, the, of, of this to consider is how the death of Joseph at the age of 17 would lead to life and blessing of Israel. And now here, after 17 years in Egypt, the death of Jacob will lead to blessing and life for Israel. A seed has to die in order to bring life. And that's a pattern we see again and again, even as it's ultimately fulfilled in Christ, even as he declared in John 12, 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. But then in verses 29 to 31, notice the future or the, the forward and futuristic perspective of Jacob's faith. He calls Joseph to him as the time of, for his death drew near. And he makes Joseph swear not to bury him in Egypt, verse asking him to place his hand under his thigh and promise. You might recall that Abraham required the same of his servant back in Genesis 24 when he sent him on a mission to find a wife for Isaac. Just as Abraham symbolically exposed himself to risk from his servant, so Jacob is doing the same thing now with Joseph. They are both committing something to the person they requested the oath from. And understand that the transportation of Jacob's bones back to Canaan isn't just for sentimental purposes, but because of Jacob's firm conviction in the promises of God and as a sign that Israel would indeed one day leave Egypt. Jacob is certain that Egypt, that Goshen, isn't the final destination for the nation that was born from him. Jacob exemplifies an Abraham-like faith in the covenant promises made to him. So Joseph states that he will do as his father requested, but then Jacob makes him swear to do it, which Joseph does. The further request to swear to the action echoes Jacob's having Esau swear to sell his birthright to Jacob. Yet again, Jacob is a man who loves the covenant, who loves God's promises, and who trusts them and lives according to them. And, and that's, that's all seen here. And as a slight aside, we, as we get into these final few chapters of Genesis, there are numerous references back to earlier episodes in the book. So many that we won't even begin able to begin to cite them all. Uh, Gordon Wenham in his commentary supplies a fairly exhaustive list if that sort of thing interests you. But, but just keep your ears uh, perked up for those echoes over the coming weeks as we come to the end of the book. After Joseph swears, Jacob bows down in worship, apparently upon his bed. Uh, the language... In, in that verse is a bit debated, even as some of our Bibles may note, but Hebrews 11.21 interprets this as an act of worship, and so we will too. Jacob is about to die, but he recognizes the preparations that need to be made for the life that goes on after his death, the life of the coming generations, those who take up the mantle as the seed people, the people of promise. See, Jacob's faith, we might say, doesn't stop at his death. And there's an implicit hope of resurrection in Jacob's actions and requests here. It's subtle, but don't miss it. Well, that brings us to chapter 48, the entirety of which is taken up with the blessing uh, of, of Joseph, Ephraim, and Manasseh. But there's some interesting wrinkles to the story that we have to pay close attention to in order to appreciate what's going on. Sometime after the exchange at the end of chapter 47, we don't know how long, Joseph was informed that his father was ill. Joseph understood this to mean that Jacob was nearing death. And so he left the palace in Egypt and went to Goshen, taking his sons Manasseh and Ephraim with him. And just as you may have already noticed, the switching back and forth between the names Jacob and Israel, so we see that here in this section, and it's hardly accidental. 
Jacob is the more personal name used, and Israel his official representative name, with the uses in the text reflecting these general distinctions. Verse 2, it was told to Jacob, your son Joseph has come to you. Verse 3, then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed. So the movement from Jacob to Israel indicates to us that there's some official covenant business about to take place. That something's going to happen on a national level, if you will. Perhaps we can even say, as one pastor puts it, Jacob is the man who wrestles with people in a foreign land. But then Israel strengthens himself and sits up in bed. Israel is the one who has been blessed after wrestling and is, and is in a position to bless others. In verses 3 and 4, Jacob recounts his experience at Luz, the Canaanite name for the place named in faith, Bethel, by, by Jacob. And Jacob's experience, in many respects, parallels Israel's, the na- Israel the nation's present circumstance. You may even recall that Jacob had two experiences at, at Bethel, at Luz. The first in chapter 28, on his way out of Canaan to Uncle Laban's, where he would temporarily make his home, though perhaps uh, longer than he planned. Then the second time Jacob goes to Bethel is in chapter 35, when God told him to dwell there. God appeared to Jacob and declared again that his name was Israel, and also said, I am El Shaddai, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come for you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to your seed after you. Now, the language used there is almost identical to what we hear in chapter 48, verses 3 and 5, and what Israel later declares about Ephraim and Manasseh. Then in verses 5 and 6, Jacob declares that he's officially going to adopt Joseph's two sons. And be sure to note the word order here that he uses, Ephraim and Manasseh. See, in verse 1, they're listed oldest and youngest, Manasseh and Ephraim. But here they're reversed, giving us a hint of what Israel is about to do. But Israel clearly states that these two will be considered his sons. He's going to adopt them. They shall be as Reuben and Simeon. They'll be like firstborns. The adoption process will take place momentarily. But but here's why Ephraim and Manasseh are tribes in Israel that inherit portions of the promised land. They are considered Jacob's sons. And and the basis for that is right here in chapter 48. Now verse 6 is a little bit difficult to figure out. A, A basic reading seems to indicate that any other sons that Joseph would have would would have had um, would be considered as belonging to Ephraim or Manasseh. Whether or not Joseph had other sons isn't recorded in the Bible. Uh, he would have been about 56 years old at this point, and Ephraim and Manasseh probably around uh, 20 years of age. But something further that we have to recognize here is that by declaring that Ephraim and Manasseh are like Reuben and Simeon means that they're symbolically replacing them after a fashion. Reuben slept with Jacob's concubine, Bilhah, and Simeon, along with Levi, were the chief culprits in the slaughter of the Shechemites. That leaves Judah next in line, and he's repentant and squarely on the path toward kingship. In the context of the Genesis story, since chapter 37, who is portrayed as being a king or king-like? Well, Joseph, Benjamin, and Judah. Well, guess what? Ephraim is going to be like Judah. In about 650 years, when Jeroboam who was of Ephraim, is made the king of the northern kingdom as other northern Israelite kings were from Ephraim. Again, what did El Shaddai, God Almighty, declare to Jacob at Bethel in chapter 35? Kings, plural, shall come from your own body. But after stating his intentions for adoption, 
Jacob then recounts the death of Rachel, taking us back to chapter 35, verses 16 to 20. So these, these references to Genesis 35 sandwich or bookend the declaration of adoption. Now, the mention of Rachel at this point could seem out of place, but Rachel died right after El Shaddai declared to Jacob that he'd be fruitful and multiply. But Rachel only had two sons. With the adoption of Ephraim and Manasseh, the number of her sons doubles to four. But also notice the details that Jacob shares. Where did Rachel die? In the land of Canaan. She never made it to Goshen. And where did she die and where was she buried? Near Ephrath, also known as Bethlehem, which means house of bread. Perhaps we can say that she died before getting to Egypt to Joseph, the bread lord, and Goshen, the temporary house of bread. But Canaan is the real place for bread. And we can read more about Bethlehem and Judges and Ruth and, and when we get to David and Jesus, all of which have to do with kingly things. But notice that Rachel died on the way. And Jacob won't make it back to Canaan, to Bethlehem, to the house of bread either. He's dying on the way in Egypt before all of the promises of God are fulfilled. Well, having made these statements to Joseph, there's a shift at verse 8, and Israel speaks and acts. The question in verse 8, who are these, is a formality. It wasn't that he didn't recognize his grandsons, but that he's formally beginning the adoption process. Not so unlike some pastors who at an infant baptism ask the parents to state the name of their child or, or who ask who brings this child for baptism. It's not that the pastor doesn't know the name or what's going on, but it's part of the formal process, and that's what's going on here. So Joseph replies in verse 9, readily identifying his two sons as gifts from God, and then Israel asks Joseph to bring them near in order for them to be blessed. And notice in verses 10 and 11 how there's a concentration of language on eyes and sight. There's mention of sight in verse 8 and also verse 17. But listen, listen to these verses again. Now the eyes of Israel were heavy with age so that he could not see. So he has some measure of blindness. No, perhaps it's not complete. And immediately we should be reminded of Isaac back in chapter 27. In fact, there are a number of significant parallels between Isaac's blessing of Jacob in chapter 27 and now Jacob's blessing of Ephraim and Manasseh here. So Joseph brings his sons near and Israel kisses them and embraces them. They're at peace. Verse 11, And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face and behold, God has let me see your seed also. And then in verse 12, notice the reference to knees. The idea seems to be that Ephraim and Manasseh sat on Israel's knees, even if momentarily, signifying the adoption process as complete. Uh, the symbolism is something like this. Children conceived between a man's knees and born between a woman's knees. And so for these two lads to sit on Israel's knees was to indicate his adoption of them. We find a similar uh, language in chapter 30 with Bilhah, who is to bear a son on Rachel's knees. And uh, we later read of Ruth in Ruth chapter 4, placing her son Obed on Naomi's knees, becoming her adopted son, a replacement for the sons she'd lost. So that, that's what's going on here. And, and then Israel engages in an act of worship at the end of verse 12. And in verses 13 to 16, we read about the cross blessing that Israel imparts on his newly adopted sons. 
as one scholar notes. In verses 13 and 14, there's much emphasis also on the hands, right hand and left hand. Joseph has arranged the boy so that Israel would place his right hand on the firstborn Manasseh and his left hand on the younger son Ephraim. The right hand is the place of prominence, normally given to the firstborn. But Israel, in good theological fashion, crosses his hands so that his right hand is placed upon the younger and his left hand upon the firstborn. The way things are then worded in verse 14 would be curious if we did not know what was going on. Israel lays his hands on Ephraim and Manasseh and blesses Joseph. What's going on here is that Joseph is being blessed with a double portion, which is the blessing of the firstborn. Joseph receives firstborn treatment through his sons. And notice what the blessing entails. Notice the confession of faith in verses 15 and 16. The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked. Walking with God should remind us of Enoch and Noah near the beginning of Genesis. Israel also declares that God has been my shepherd all my life long to this day. He's declaring the God who took care of him. Verse 16. The angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the lads. What angel is Israel referring to? Well, the angel he certainly wrestled with at the fort of Jabbok, who blessed him and gave him the name of Israel. And so that name and the name of Abraham and Isaac also be upon them. Remember, the name represents the authority, privileges, and vocation that come with being the seed of Abraham. Still more, while the people who built the Tower of Babel sought to make a name for themselves, God promised to give Abraham a name. This is the name that Israel is now passing on to Ephraim and Manasseh. They now have authority, privileges, and a vocation of bearing this special mission in the world, being the seed of Abraham and being the means of blessing for all the nations of the earth. And so Israel commends them to be like fish for a multitude in the midst of the earth. This mixed metaphor is strange and somewhat hard to figure out. Fish typically are equated with Gentiles, but would be confined to the sea, not the land. So to team like fish in the land is, is odd, hence why it's called a mixed metaphor. However, later in Israel's history, uh, the northern part of Israel would be a semi-Gentile nation. So perhaps this is a prophetic mention of, of fish picturing things to come. But from Rebekah's womb to his deathbed in Egypt, Jacob testifies that God has been there with him, leading him, liberating him. Well, Joseph sees what's going on here, that Jacob is purposefully giving the younger Ephraim priority over the older Manasseh, and it's evil in his eyes. So he tries to forcibly move his father's right hand from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head, adding his protest in verse 18. He's not so unlike Esau trying to undo the blessing. But then notice his father's reply in verse 19. I know, my son, I know. Two declarations of I know surround my son. Israel's sight is better than Joseph's sight here. There's a sight that is better than physical sight. Despite his eyes being heavy with age, Jacob saw more. Jacob's lack of sight is not like Isaac's lack of spiritual insight back in chapter 27 rather indicates that he's operating by faith and not by sight. Jacob avoids the mistake of his father. Jacob is blessing and acting by faith. Manasseh will be great, but Ephraim will be greater still. And his seed will not only become a nation, but will become many nations. 
Later in Israel's history, Ephraim becomes the name for the whole northern kingdom, incorporating most of the tribes. And in terms of politics and population, Ephraim and Manasseh did receive the greatest blessings. Such special blessings belonged to no other tribes, thus the wish that God would make someone like Ephraim and Manasseh. Well, finally, in verses 21 and 22, notice Israel's words to Joseph. Behold, I am about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. God will be Emmanuel to Joseph, just as he's been to Jacob. And Joseph's future isn't in Egypt either, but in Canaan, the land of his fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What exactly is being referred to in verse 22 isn't entirely clear, but it does seem that Jacob is referring to an unrecorded conquest in Canaan. We'd probably like to know about Jacob's military exploits, even as we get to read about some of Abraham's. But they, they weren't recorded for us, so we'll have to content ourselves with the mysterious mention of it here. But a, but a small sliver of Canaan has been conquered. A portion has been taken. The process has begun. And there's a job to be finished. A mission to be accomplished by later generations. Things aren't complete. There's still work to be done. So what else might be here for our faith today as we consider the faith of Jacob displayed in this text? Well, some of the connections have been made already and are already apparent to you, I'm sure. But what what are some things that we could note further and in particular? First, faith looks forward to and makes preparations for the future. Faith, simply put, is having your life shaped by the Word of God. If there's any doubt about this, read Hebrews chapter 11. As, as a fellow pastor so capably states, time and time again you will read there, Hebrews 11, of how people had their lives shaped by the Word of God, whether that Word was a direct command or a promise for the future. Having faith doesn't mean that you deny the present realities of life, sickness, death, unrealized promises. Having faith means that you cling to God's Word and allow it to shape your life in the face of all the present situations around you. Israel was a man of faith. He walked with God from the time of his birth. His faith shaped the way he lived and died. Even his burial was in the light of the future promise of God. The promises of God's future shape the way we do things right now. The fact, for instance, that we are promised the resurrection of our bodies means that our lives are to be lived faithfully in the present, looking for the resurrection of the righteous. In short, God's promises are not just out there somewhere. Rather, they have a direct impact impact on how we live right now. And understand how, how different this perspective is from our culture and the spirit of the age that is consumed with the present, with the now, with the instant, and even the slogan of you only live once. While there are some who still promote planning ahead, thinking about the future and so forth, which is wise to do, nevertheless there's an overwhelming obsession with the here and now. And it's hard for us not to be unaffected by it. It makes the life of faith that much more challenging, doesn't it? And it's that much more difficult for us to cultivate in our children a sense of thinking ahead, thinking beyond their present desire for instant gratification. It's the stuff of maturity, and that's rarely easy. But it's so vitally important that we have this perspective of faith rooted in God's Word so as to stand against the cultural tide of the day. 
And given the fact that we have the convictions that we do about the kind of education that our children are to receive, and the fact that we view children as gifts, as did Joseph, as blessings, is also an act of faith. Some days, taking greater faith to believe that truth than others. But one of the chief ways in which our society displays its obsession with the present and its complete disregard for the future is abortion. You know, it's societal and cultural cannibalism when you stop and think about it. It's to devour your own. It's to embrace death. It's paganism. It's one of, if not the greatest acts of self-love a person can perform. And so we stand against that. We train our children in the faith and the heritage we've received from those who have gone before us, passing it down from one generation to the next, resting in God's promises to us and to our children, ever with an eye to the future. Perhaps we can even say that the spiritual inheritance that we seek to pass down to our children ought to have physical manifestations, even as our faith testifies and seeks to display a life of ruling and subduing the earth to the glory of God. Well, second, and related to the point we just made, we have to recognize that we, like Rachel, like Jacob, like Joseph, die on the way. We die before all is fulfilled. We don't see the fullness, but that shouldn't discourage our trust and rest in God and His promises. In fact, we have all the more reason for encouragement because the fullness promised to Abraham and Sarah, to Isaac and Rebekah, to Jacob and Rachel, has come in the Lord Jesus and continues to be fulfilled. And given that fact, then we should be all the more encouraged by the promises that Jesus has made to His church, to us, His people, concerning His plan for us and the world and our calling in and for the world. The work that we do unto the Lord is not a waste of time. The effort, the blood, sweat, and tears, the anguish, and the struggles are not meaningless. But we also recognize, the life of faith recognizes that there's still more to come. This life isn't as good as it gets. And that's in no way to demean the goodness of creation or God's good gifts and blessings to us for which we ought to be ever thankful. Not at all. But faith... Biblical faith, a faith like Jacob the man of faith displays here, is a faith that longs for the country, the land where famine and death are no more. A time when God will wipe away every tear from our eyes, and neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. There is a future yet to be experienced, and faith recognizes that. And on account of that, gives itself to the preparations for that future, which is a life of obedience, a life of seeking first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, a life given to the promises of God over the course of the pilgrimage of this life to which each and every one of us is called, even as we all have our parts to play and our stories to tell along the way. And in the meantime, and for that journey, Jesus, our King, says to us, even today, Behold, I am making all things new. And these words are trustworthy and true. May He grant us the eyes of faith to see and believe and live. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we do pray that You would so direct us in a Jacob-like faith 
that we might understand our present calling, even as we look to the more glorious future that you have promised. Strengthen us for this work. Strengthen our faith to these ends. And may you grant us faithfulness today and all the days to come in which you would have us to serve you in this life and in this world. We humbly ask in Jesus' name. Amen.